0: Welcome to School of Everything Else.
1: The Good Place. This was commissioned by Emmanuel Matias. In this episode, we'll be talking about Seasons 1, 2, and 3. Normally, this much TV would cost through the roof to retain us for, the amount of hours we'd have to put in. But, as with the PS4 Spider-Man, when Emmanuel asked, I was already well underway with watching it and awaiting the release of Season 3 at the time, so we took the standard fee to discuss the whole show so far. Now, initially, structure-wise, I thought we could just go season by season, like we did with Bojack Horseman, spending about half an hour on each. Then I realised we'd be spending all of our season one time talking about the characters, and there's little point describing the superficial first impressions of the world without spoilers, for those who haven't seen an episode, because things just keep changing and changing, so the information isn't of use to those who have seen it, and the exploration is going to end up too shallow. Since a lot of this show is about changing the game as greater mysteries are revealed, it reminds me of Harry Potter. Back in 2012, we recorded eight excellent podcasts on the films that would have been compromised if we had to hold back in the early stages on discussing the later aspects and implications. So, for example, when we talked about Philosopher's Stone, it was made better by being able to talk about Snape and where he was actually motivated. So even though The Good Place has not yet concluded, and we don't have the complete overview, which is what we're going to do with Fantastic Beasts, we are waiting until though that series is done before we talk about each individual film. We're going to talk about everything we know so far. One to three. It's just Sharon and I. All we have are our bullet points and our brains. So for this show, either see the first three seasons in their entirety and come back or prepare for a mind-meltingly meta discussion about a show that you haven't seen, but are going to want to watch at some point while we're talking about it.
0: Yes. And also we will probably say things that make no sense.
1: But that's true every week. So (laughs) also within the TV show, nobody is allowed to swear. The words get translated into fork, shirt, son of a bench, and ash hole. And even when they don't technically have to do that anymore, this persists as a quirk of the good place. So I think we should attempt to do the same.
0: You swear more than I do anyway.
1: Yes, I darn well do. It is worth noting that the show creator is Michael Schur, who has contributed heavily to some of our all-time favorite TV shows, including The American Office, Parks and Rec, and Brooklyn Nine-Nine. This guy is just a wellspring of great television. There's also a a little note uh, in in The Good Place that this actually takes place in the same universe as at least Parks and Rec, which was supposed to take place in the same universe as The Office, Mm. uh, which is um, the safe that uh, Jason ends up inside is a Swanson safe. It is. This is what you do with your money. You do not give it to the government like a sucker. It's also worth noting that the three listed producers are David Miner, Morgan Sackett, and Drew Goddard. Now, this third guy directed Cabin in the Woods, and while I hate the lack of thought exhibited by the characters in the final philosophical conclusion, I love the concept and execution. Along with bad times at the Royale, this fellow is one to watch. And The Good Place has a lot in common with The Cabin in the Woods, in terms of the mundane mechanics of the balance of good and evil presiding over all existence, personified in a bitchy office fashion, rather than with Lovecraftian impenetrability. Only in The Good Place, nearly all the screen time is devoted to the character's wrestling with the moral implications of their actions, so it is comparative catnip to me.
0: I would add a third item to that trilogy, if you like, of humans using bureaucracy to make sense of the infinite. Hitchhikers? Okay, clearly there's lots. That's not what yeah. I was thinking of.
1: <laughs> I mean, that's in a more sci- sci-fi context, but ultimately, yeah, the idea that aliens are all heavily into red tape, specifically Vogons.
0: Absolutely, but yeah. uh, Beetlejuice, I was thinking of.
1: Yeah, in a shallow way, the same shallow yeah. way that Burton shallowly goes Does through hit all of his no, films. I agree, yeah.
0: but yeah, the idea...
1: How that's... is that guy still an A-list director?
0: <laughs> the principle that we can't contend with the massive, so we turn it into... Forms in triplicate and record books. It's a way of making sense of things.
1: Yeah, I could understand that Beetlejuice being like a side world within this world, (laughs) kind of. Mm. Or at least a version of it, where, you know, there's a bit less checkered flaws.
0: Absolutely. And it's worth noting that that way, if Gina Davis and Alec Baldwin shift their bad place to a good place but the place itself doesn't actually change it's just to do with their perspective
2: mm-hmm.
1: yep i'm going with that when we finally eventually cover beetlejuice we'll go into it in so much more painful depth than burton ever like burton would listen to it and go huh well, i never thought about it like that no you never did tim the first episode of The Good Place is one of the finest pilots I have ever had the pleasure of taking in. It made me immediately want to know more and stay with these characters, laying out its premise with a seemingly effortless elegance. It's one of those situations where it's like people kept going on and on about it on uh, Twitter. I was like, okay, I guess I'll watch an episode. Okay, now I'm hooked. Mm. This was a series that would have been wasted visually in the standard definition 1990s and early 2000s. Every frame is bright and sharp with vivid colours. In particular, an energetic green just designed to make your TV screen look edible. It's Wonka's factory for grown-ups. No, not the Tim Burton version. (laughs) (laughs) Why do I keep kicking him today? (laughs) The briefest overview of season one for those who aren't going to see it yet runs thus. A woman named Eleanor Shellstrop wakes up in an office. She is told by her kindly interviewer, Michael, that she is in the good place. Basically heaven, only not tied to any specific religion, as apparently everybody had a bit of it right. She finds out that everyone on Earth is definitely judged by their deeds, and in a gamified way, points are allocated to their actions going up when they do good things, and going down when they do bad things. So everyone here really did good things a lot. Eleanor is shown to a sweet little house and in, it's full of clowns. <laughs> Eleanor is shown to a sweet little clown house and introduced to her soulmate, Chidi Anagonye. See, it's easy, Eleanor, a philosophy teacher. When Michael leaves, she confides in Chidi that she's actually a rotten person who never did any of the good things she's being commended for, like helping third world children. There's been a clerical error. She's not supposed to be here. Season 1 is all about these two, and soon enough a snobbish socialite named Tahani and a lovable moron from Florida named Jason, plus a very helpful guide program named Janet, attempting to work out ways that Eleanor can slip through the net and not be sent to the bad place. Aside from Janet, they all work out over time that none of them should really be in the good place, which leads to a climactic confrontation with Michael." I still haven't spoiled the ending of season one. You can go see it now if you don't want to have it spoiled, if that sounds like your cup of tea. Otherwise, we are going to proceed as though everyone has seen at least season one, and we're going to be talking about two and three as well. Kristen Bell is the ideal casting for Eleanor Shellstrop. We've seen her be sugar-sweet in Frozen, and yet she has an edge to her in Forgetting Sarah Marshall and Veronica Mars. Eleanor, however, may be the performance of her career, no matter how much Disney surfs that Frozen wave. Here we are presented with a woman who initially seems blank and agreeable, but behind closed doors becomes a mirror to our laziest, shittiest, most pathetic side. In the hands of a different actress, this would make her instantly dislikable, but for some reason I engaged more with her. She's funny and immature, in a way that I wish Marvel would let women be in their movies." And there are traces of hurt and disappointment and fear there which have us soon hoping that she can become a better person and we lean into her development that way. We're given a little bit of a, you know, this person might be worth saving and she makes us laugh so we may as well stick with her. You know, that's kind of important. When you're introducing, like, nasty characters, it's kind of really important that they're funny. If they're just nasty, it's like, ugh, for me at least. Mm. I don't know, but I, I feel like this is something that a lot of people share. None of us listening may be as cartoonishly uncaring and rude and selfish as Eleanor, but we have all had our conscience prick at us in the past when we indulged in that kind of behaviour. We have all asked ourselves the question, can I stop being like this, please? It's not good to be like this, I know I'm hurting others. The tragedy of life is that there are people who drown out that voice and refuse to act to change themselves for the better, but it's hard, The Good Place makes it abundantly clear that as hard as it may be to accept that you need to change, it is so much harder to sustain that. Goodness is exhausting. It eats your energy. Being a lazy, selfish shit allows you to leech energy from others, sucking around the world like a parasite.
0: I would posit to that, that goodness is... Like eating healthily. Yeah. It doesn't give you immediate energy boosts, but long term, it does give you sustainable energy. Being a lazy, selfish shit is like constantly feeding yourself sugar. It gives you instant energy boosts and then you crash. Yeah. And over time, your energy gets less.
1: Yeah. Definitely more on this in a bit. Chidi Anigonier is a cunningly positioned foil for Eleanor. All that anxiety and guilt and consideration that she cast aside in life was the constant chorus of his. They are opposites because he thinks too much and she doesn't think enough. Without him, we don't get the major force of creative energy behind this show, which is the moral philosophy. Because Eleanor is there as the audience character, we are allowed to let the air out of the pompous circle of ideas without actions that philosophy can sometimes be. The very act of thinking so deeply about life that you are rendered separate from everybody else on the planet – Cheedy effectively gated himself away at a young age in a personal medium place, fraught with nervous responses to decision-making and yet propelled forward by lofty thinking. He's Eleanor's Jiminy Cricket on her path to being a real live woman, just as she's his non-manic, actually pretty lazy, non-pixie, actually pretty impish, non-dream, actually pretty nightmarish girl, positioned to kick him out of his comfortable funk hard.
3: So where are you from, Cheedy?
4: well i was born in nigeria raised in senegal but my work took me all over the place australia hong kong paris what about you uh well
3: i was i was born in phoenix Mm -hmm. arizona um then i went to school in tempe arizona Mm -hmm. and then i moved back to phoenix arizona your english is amazing
4: oh I'm actually speaking French. This place just translates whatever you say into a language the other person can understand. So, it's incredible. Whoa. And now I want to say this. Okay. Eleanor, I have spent my entire life in pursuit of fundamental truths about the universe, and now we can actually learn about them together as soulmates. It's overwhelming.
3: Cheaty. You'll stand by my side no matter what, right?
4: Of course I will.
3: Promise me. Say, I promise I will never betray you for any reason.
4: Eleanor, I swear that I will never say or do anything to cause you any harm.
3: Good. Because those aren't my memories. I wasn't a lawyer. I never went to the Ukraine. I hate clowns. There's been a big mistake. I'm not supposed to be here.
1: Wait, what? Okay, so The Good Place is a fun thesis on philosophy. That's what it really represents. It kind of kicks you into gear straight away. There's an idea that Chidi might actually be the POV character because uh, he's the one who makes things happen. He's not. It's Eleanor because... We're being taught by Chidi. He's our teacher.
0: I was just about to say, Chidi does not make things happen. No. Chidi doesn't make anything happen. That's the point of Chidi. Yeah, <laughs> but no. You Technically, Harry
1: doesn't make things happen much either. He gets taught a hell of a lot. But we're Eleanor, mm. if we're anyone. Although there's also a lot of uh, suggestion that you are a composite of two. Of the characters in uh, uh, the Good Place, or a, p- a composite of, the char- of all the characters, that they are all us.
2: Indeed, and we, are,
1: we have different <laughs> that levels that Jungian of all of facets
0: them? of identity yeah. thing again that I like so much. But yeah, the, the difficulty with reading philosophy as a general thing is that it, boring is a relative concept, but it's difficult to apply philosophy to real world examples unless you're given real world examples to look at. And that's effectively what The Good Place gives you, an ongoing real-world example of the moral philosophy that Chidi is presenting in theory form.
1: So uh, I I watched a bunch of videos in uh, prep for this, and one thing that is abundantly clear, I'm not a philosophy major, and I cannot grab out of the air what this teacher or this teacher or this professor or this uh, uh, philosopher came up with. That's not my forte. What I can do is cite what other people have said on YouTube, what I've learned from you and what we've learned over the years. Uh, Dr. Todd May is doing a series of uh, um, Good Place videos, and uh, he described Eleanor as the psychological egoist. Do you know what that means?
0: Uh, I can hazard a guess, but go on, tell me what Dr. Todd May says it is.
1: A psychological egoist is someone who not only acts in a shitty way, but believes that everybody acts in a shitty way for their own self-interest. Right,
0: okay. So their perception of other people's mind behaviour is a reflection of their own.
1: Yeah. I've mentioned this on the show before, and I always consider this to be a giant excuse. I'm going to behave like this because... Everyone behaves like this. If I stop believing this for one moment, my whole world falls apart. Eleanor stops believing it for one moment and her whole world falls apart. Mm -hmm. You have to cling to this because if there's even the slightest shadow of doubt that, for example... Uh the Dr. Todd May used the example of a mother being kind to her children. It's like, well, that's just what society tells you. You're not just being kind to your children because you're a kind person or because it's something that you actually want to do, you're just being told to do that. Oh, you know, people are just saying nice things about women because they're being white knights. Uh that they don't act they've got they're playing an angle here. They're, yeah, they're trying to get laid. She won't fork you. Under those circumstances, if they ever have to think to themselves, gee, maybe people are nice. Maybe it's just me. They may as well kill themselves under that scenario, or change, which is slightly more frightening for a lot of people.
0: Any situation like this, what, what you're looking for to be not necessarily ideal, but to be able to function... What you're looking for is a balance. If you are a psychological egoist and you believe that you might be
1: shirty, but
0: then so is everyone else, so it really doesn't matter.
1: By the way, the Joker, Heath Ledger's Joker in particular, psychological egoist, to the tenth power.
0: Mm -hmm. Everyone's just
1: as bad as me. It's a
0: villain characteristic, I'll tell you that. But the.
1: Which is why ash holes identify with him and go, oh, the Joker, oh, what a wise man.
0: Indeed. But the the soft underbelly of that is deep seated, gripping, paralyzing anxiety. Cheating. Cheaty, Exactly. <laughs> that this is how you feel, and nobody else feels like that. Mm. Nobody else would act the way you act. I'm getting Um, a stomachache. Especially if you have an anxiety that takes a component of social judgment. So if you have social anxiety, that's likely to make this uh, essence of it even worse. And it freezes you. It prevents you from being able to do anything. So really, you need to be able to find that balance between, well, this is how I would do this. Some people might do it the same way, some people might not. But ultimately, I have to make a choice to do things this way. And I think that kind of feeds you down the path of a more existentialist philosophy where things don't have inherent meaning in and of themselves... But they have the meaning that we choose to apply to them. Mm. And that we, and that again, you still have to, even in existentialist philosophy, you still have to be able to find a balance between what meanings society puts on actions and what meanings you personally put on actions.
1: Existentialism. We've got to talk about that. I don't think we've ever really talked about it in and of what it is so much as how it applies to characters in films. Mm. An existential quandary, it's best described as what Michael goes through when he realises, oh, it's all just us. And, uh, you know, he has that midlife crisis. Uh, and it's, I mean, Eleanor technically goes through one as well. Mm. Technically, so does Chidi. Yeah. Tahani wrestles with hers and it's it's lighter and Jason gets the edges of one.
2: Yeah.
0: It's it's the things, it's basically that transition between the things you've always thought were irrevocably true and would never be argued with are being argued with. Yeah. And you suddenly have to look at the entire framework of your existence in a different way. Now, ideally, we should be drip fed existential crises throughout our lives from a very young age because that way we get used to them in small doses over a long period of time, we adapt to them, and then when the big ones come later in life, it's okay.
1: We've done that with Lyra, but I feel like we gave her too much too fast over time, and she has gone through a childhood depression... Uh, Over the extremity of of us saying, look reality in the face and lick it, me specifically, more than you.
0: (laughs) While I would agree that to a degree that's true, I don't think we are unique in that. And especially at this point in history, it is very difficult to keep children protected from the outside world these days. Yeah. And and you wouldn't necessarily want to, but again it's knowing your child and what they can take at different stages and finding ways to help them shield and recover at the right times so that they can keep moving mm. forwards.
1: One of the worst take homes you can take from existentialism is nothing matters, so I may as well do whatever I want. Mm. That is... uh, That then infringes on nihilism, where you believe in nothing, Lebowski, nothing.
0: Nihilism is the dark side of existentialism, definitely. Yeah. Uh,
1: Existentialism can have very positive outcomes insofar as you're like, okay, so we do things, and as a result, good or bad things happen, which is the essence of the point system. Mm. Showing the gamified point system to the people at the beginning of the series starts the cogs whirring in terms of consequences right. and that like consequences are ultimately one of the key factors in existentialism especially this ties in with the idea of existence being finite well if we just keep going we're going to get to the death of the earth and then there well, the death of the human race then the death of the earth then the death of the sun then the heat death of the entire universe so what's the point to which i would argue what kind of permanent what kind of permanence are you looking for here?
0: Yeah, well, again, the somebody got ripped on Twitter a little while ago for uh, talking about a... A potential crisis, I think it was a sinkhole opening up beneath the ice somewhere, mm-hmm. that was likely to happen at some point within the next 50 to 100 years. Were
1: well, people arguing, well, was, the whole earth will be destroyed eventually? No.
0: Because that's his, a dumb argument. His point was, well, 50 to 100 years, I would hardly call that a crisis, would you? Or, you know, basically Oh, he was arguing in a foolish yeah, way where it's, it's like, our away.
1: grandkids don't matter at all.
0: Precisely. And that was what a lot of people came back with. That that you And when I say remember,
1: our, I don't mean... Hour, I mean, capital O hour.
0: Absolutely, yeah, and and the the whole thing about well, the heat death of the universe is actually not something that you really need to devote much time to in your day to day living because we're not going to be here.
1: As Annie Hall uh, said, well, how is that your business? <laughs>
0: yeah, exactly. And this this is kind of where that whole
1: Annie he didn't say it herself, but it was uh, uh, I look at your the mother.
0: Look at your sphere of influence. You as an individual, literally cannot do anything about the heat death mm. of the universe.
1: Which leads to an existential crisis.
0: Yeah, indeed. <laughs> but but so, start I with... I
1: think we hold ourselves to too high a standard. Well,
0: exactly.
1: <laughs> I can't okay. do anything about the heat death of the universe. Here's I'm what such we a do. failure.
0: Here's what we do. Start with the heat death of the universe. Work, Work your backwards. way backwards. Scale it down a bit. You're British. <laughs> exactly. Work out what range of things you can do something about up to and possibly including the heat death of the universe. Hmm. But the... If, if you're at the stage of saying, well, then fork it. It doesn't matter what I do, because the sun might not come up tomorrow.
1: But As you snatch candy from a baby and kick over a puppy.
0: Indeed. But I can't remember what it's from, but until we see whether or not the sunrise is going to happen tomorrow, let's assume that it will and <laughs> act accordingly. <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay. Um, so, uh, folks, uh, we take all responsibility for any existential crisis you might go through as a result of this show. Absolutely,
0: but we do not take responsibility for the heat death of the universe.
1: Absolutely not. That was no fault. Not never know how. Um, (laughs) Wisecrack defined Chidi as a flawed philosopher, exemplified by the fact that he thinks all these things... Thinks deeply into life and then doesn't act. Mm. He knows a hell of a lot about people, but he can't people.
0: Indeed, and I would say actually that calling Cheedy a flawed philosopher, the word flawed is superfluous to requirements because that
1: all philosophers are by their definition flawed.
0: Exactly, if if that's the flaw that you're talking about, that they obsess and devote so much time and energy to thinking about how things work in theory, that when it comes to putting those things into practice, it just doesn't happen. Because they're constantly thinking about, well, the consequences of this could be A, the consequences of this could be B, and by the time they've worked out plans A through Z for all possible permutations, the moment has passed and you can't make the decision. And I am speaking from personal experience here.
1: But not all philosophers are entirely inactive, although actually calling him a flawed philosopher is roughly akin to saying... He's a corrupt member of the GOP.
0: Uh. Well, indeed. But, OK, name me one philosopher who doesn't have that flaw. Me. Would you describe yourself as primarily a philosopher? Yes. OK, then you and I have very different definitions of what constitutes a
1: philosopher. Yeah, dog. <laughs> Honestly, ask the average person in the street to name five philosophers. They'll go... Poof. Peter Ustinov.
2: Descartes.
1: <laughs> <laughs> who is Bertie In? Oh,
0: Plato. OK.
1: I am, of course, being facetious, I am a bottomless forking pit of flaws. Now, Chidi means a lot to you personally. Do do you want to talk about that? Because when we watched this, it was just an occasion of me sort of like nudging you with my elbow and you (laughs) hanging your head and laughing. And just it kept going on, just more elbows and more elbows. And the, um, the things that he goes through, obviously comedic, but it's like... If you've ever lived that or lived with a person who does that, it's hilarious because it's so true.
0: It's hilarious, but it's horrible. Yes. The stomachache. Oh, sweet Jesus, the stomachache. Like, just living in that perpetual state of my stomach hurts because I don't know what decision to make. Hmm. It's, it can be nightmarish. But the level of, yeah, I do that. Yeah, I do that as well. Yeah, do that with Chidi was quite intense. And yes, that thing about most people are probably a blend of one or like two or more characters from the show. I think I did a fairly basic quiz on it and came out with a combination of Chidi and Eleanor. And mm-hmm. this was before I'd even seen the show. Oh. So then I'm watching it going... Yeah, yeah. It's only a little bit of Eleanor, but I would say that, again, just to go back very briefly to how Eleanor's presented, that thing about where she does all of these things which are so terrible, the beauty of how she is painted is that all of the things that she's done, most people watching the show could probably see that and pick out one or two things that Eleanor's done and one or two ways of looking at things that Eleanor has and go, yeah, that's me. Yeah, I do that. The humour in her is that she's done all of them. (laughs) But Chidi hasn't done anything.
1: He's written a book.
0: He's... (laughs) (laughs) Right. He's written that book. I can guarantee you he's written that book 17 times.
1: Mm, That is a conservative estimate.
0: Yeah, indeed. But the, the... uh-huh. It's it's not even just anxiety because to call it anxiety is suggestive that that's a disorder that it's an illness that it's something that that appears because of things not being right and can be fixed. It is a character trait for him. It's part of who he is, and that the one of the best scenes or, or episodes that's chi focused for me is when they're looking at the trolley problem.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And it, just this constant barrage of nightmarish gore that is thrown at him over and over and over again because either either because he made the wrong decision or because he didn't make a decision at all. And dear God, if that's not the inside of my head sometimes. Yeah,
1: it's your nightmare. Because, you know, I must act, I must act, but what about the consequences? I'm not going to act, but what about the consequences of that? Yeah, Yeah,
0: exactly. And honestly... And I'm going to say this now. This is one of the reasons why I don't drink very much. Because when I have had alcohol in my system on a regular basis, the ability of my brain to wall off that almost constant looping film of the terrible things that could happen if I don't do something to stop them, it is difficult to keep the door shut.
5: Yeah.
0: And... That, having to kind of put that to one side and get on with everyday life is tough. And honestly, that's where the stomachache comes from. The mm. stomachache is one of the most benevolent ways that that can manifest itself. Yeah. It's very, very stressful to live through. And I think at one point he actually, I don't know if he makes this choice or if somebody suggests it to him, but that the correct solution to the trolley problem is to throw yourself in front of the trolley. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah,
1: well, that, it, it's a it's a problem very specifically with no correct uh, correct answer, but it's an answer that you can sit with and still feel you are doing good.
5: Yeah.
1: Also, it's thinking outside the box, which I always love.
0: Sweet and teensy,
3: just like you. Boop, oh. oh, you booped me. <laughs> I did. That's fine.
1: Now, Tahani. I have observed myself, because I, I didn't watch anything which really talked about who she was yet, Because possibly because she's a bit more unexplored, slightly enigmatic. We haven't yet gotten to the depths of her, or we're, we might be afraid we have got all there is to, uh, to know about Tahani, but I feel like they got more in season four. As a servant of performative self-worth... They make... I mean, she's awful to begin with, but in a very funny, charming way. Um.
2: Hello.
3: (laughs) Do you get it, Eleanor? Because, you know, we're all in the same afterlife, so, you know, I'm always in the (laughs) neighbourhood. Do you get it? I do, and it's delightful. Anyway, this is for you. Just a housewarming plant is a little reminder that if there's ever anything that you need, I am right next door. How could I possibly forget? Have a great day, honey
1: Jamila Jamil, by the way, uh, was uh, is this very tall, statuesque, goddess of a, uh, a actress who was turned away from role after role they were saying no no, no you're too tall or this too is, British this
0: is her first professional acting role
1: bingo she's
0: done uh, I think radio presenting before yeah. this and TV presenting but not acting
1: <laughs> radio presenting where they can't see her at all and TV presenting where they shoot her from above the waist and they can put someone on a box. It's intimidating for, for men to have a woman that tall around them. Well, just a
0: big, sexy, perfect giraffe. Then I would posit that they have issues with their own self-worth.
1: I agree.
2: Oh, a giant woman!
1: Anyway, <laughs> uh, one of the questions was, um, uh, that we got uh, sent was, uh, you know, do the rest of the cast members get drowned out by the two established uh, superstars, Ted Danson and Kristen Bell? Uh, no short answer not even slightly no. No. It's, it's an ensemble it's very piece very much an ensemble and uh, piece. everyone not only pulls their weight they do it in that arrested development way where there's no dead weight at all everyone's brilliant mm. so Tahani serving a performative self-worth they hone in on the fact that she has sister issues. She has parental issues. Everything she does is to impress someone and to prove she's better than someone who she will always feel worse than. Yeah. Which is really easy to relate to. So as soon as we know that about her, like, like I say, she comes off as obnoxious to begin with, but as soon as we know that about her, it's much easier to sympathise. Mm-hmm. And to see that that is effectively the cause of her undoing as well. It's There's a philosophical take on that everybody who died did so because they gave into their weakness eleanor was at the time walking away from somebody asking her about being helpful to people and she was selfishly going nope i only care about me and then she got hit by the uh, trolleys there's a trolley problem for you Chidi was gripped with indecision when he got hit by the falling air conditioner Mm -hmm. Tahani was pushing over a giant gold statue of her sister or pulling it over onto herself not thinking about the actual consequences of what she was doing because she was so gripped with frustration and envy and Jason has a serious impulse control problem and got in a safe with a bunch of whippets without thinking about it Mm, indeed Part of the riddle of Tahani is finding the person that we can relate to amidst the crazy references she throws out and, and the way that she's like, oh, I went yachting with Beck. And it's like, no, none of us can relate to that. She's just being horribly name-dropping. Mm-hmm. And she's like, oh, this reminds me of that time we, we, uh, we, we hunted for Sting's cat in the Alps.
0: <laughs> and... This is hard, because the only trolley I've ever been on is James Franco's ironic trolley. It travels backwards from his penguin grotto to his garage of
4: adult tricycles.
1: But that at the core of that is a frustrated little girl who just wanted to be told, you're doing great being you.
0: Mm. Yeah, what Tahani needed and never got was to be accepted for who she was. Everybody works as great foils to each other, I would say. Cheedy makes a great foil for Eleanor because he thinks too much and Eleanor thinks too little.
5: Hmm.
0: Tahani does because Eleanor is desperately trying to prove what she's not, and holds herself to a very, very low standard. Mm. Tahani holds herself to an impossibly high standard and is constantly trying to prove to everybody what she is without really working out whether that thing that she's trying to prove she is, is actually what she wants to mm. be.
1: And she's elected to do, possibly because of what her sister has uh, has done, but she's elected to be seen as good and great. And so she does lots of charity work, mm. but in a way that seems to mostly be about making her look good.
0: Yeah, well, she does some great things and she has achieved some... Uh, some solid accomplishments in her life and this is one of the things that has her so baffled when she finds out that she doesn't actually deserve to be in the good place because she has raised an awful lot of money for various charities and she has brought joy to people at a distance but it's her motivation that's mm. called into question. And
1: she never deeply questioned it while alive. Exactly. So now she's forced to. Mm. Uh, Jason's purpose on the show, I was kind of baffled here because he just seemed like the the, the dumb guy who... Uh, um, kind of like Todd in BoJack, who's supposed to be the heart, but that Jason very often is selfish and stupid in a way that even Todd w- would consider being an asshole. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he does serve a purpose, well, do you want to have a think about what that my, is?
0: My argument with Jason, and it's, it's interesting because it is juxtaposed against... Oh, by the way, his... if you're
1: watching this to begin with, Jason uh, comes off as a man named Jean-Yu, who is uh, in, in the grip of a vow of silence. He's actually just a boob from Florida named Jason. Yeah. Uh, he's, again, like Eleanor, just pretending that he's not.
0: Absolutely. And I was about to say that as the the flip side of the Buddhist monk that everybody thinks he is when he first shows up... Mm-hmm.
1: The only thing that we know is that we know nothing. Dude, that's us.
0: When you first meet Jason, it appears as though he is the purest example of who deserves to be in the good place. Mm-hmm. Because he is a Buddhist monk. He has made a vow of silence. He has rejected the trappings of life that could cause us to be bogged down and become bad people.
1: And specifically, monks also tend to reject society. They yeah, go and live absolutely. elsewhere.
0: So, you know, that he lacks, superficially at least, and, and to how people interpret, he lacks the materialistic trappings that cause us to make bad decisions. As the show progresses, it became apparent to me that Jason, out of all of them, is still the closest <laughs> to being deserving of the good place because Jason can be happy anywhere he is so i don't I don't even want to use the word dumb or stupid it's not it it doesn't even carry any weight in this particular context, but because blank Jason does not have expectations of himself by and large
5: mm.
0: he knows who he is he knows who his friends are and like I said he can make himself happy in very limited circumstances the difficulty I think that his, his character arc it seems to be more along the lines of learning to relate to other people and put his own needs to one side Which, unlike Eleanor, who knows what other people's needs are and consciously chooses to ignore them, that's why, in in terms of judgment of worth, Eleanor is worse than Jason because she knows what other people's needs are and she steps on them. Mm. Jason genuinely doesn't know, and at least to begin with, and and you can't hold it against him that he doesn't know.
1: Yeah. Also, like he's very childlike. He represents an id, just someone who will just go and grab whatever's right Mm. there. Like, if anyone's the id, like, there's several super egos in here split into various characters. Mm. But if anyone's just the id, it's Jason.
0: Yeah, indeed.
1: Um, Michael and Janet, I've actually put together because they are basic programs achieving complexity. When you first meet Michael, okay, major spoilers for the end of season one of The Good Place. You ready?
3: Holy mother-forking shirt balls. What? Oh, man. Wow. Okay, (laughs) okay. (laughs) Woo! Yo, Mikey, Sean. Come on out.
4: Is
2: everything okay?
3: Right as rain, Mikey, my boy. So, uh, Chidi and I are gonna go to the bad place. What? Trust me, I've got this. That's our decision, let's hit it.
4: What about real Eleanor? No,
3: it's me and Chidi, call the train.
4: Eleanor, what's going on?
3: It took me a while to figure it out, but just now as we were all fighting and yelling at each other and each one of us demanding we should go to the bad place, I thought to myself, man, this is torture. And then it hit me. They're never going to call a train to take us to the bad place. They can't. Because we're already here. This is the bad place.
2: <laughs> oh, man. I can't believe you figured it out. Go. <laughs> oh.
1: He's a demon. He is a uh, uh, evil angel demon thing who has uh, decided to make a fake good place within the bad place to torment people by putting these four together. Uh, And he starts off very basic, like his laugh that... It, like, he's, he just wants to torture people, and uh, he has kind of a sort of a, a, a misguided old uh, man sensibility about him, but he's not complex. And Janet starts off, like, absolutely blank. Hi, how's it going? She will help you answer every question that you give her, and over time, she develops more of a personality.
4: Maybe it's a test. Maybe if you go to Michael... Then you tell them the truth, you'll pass the test, and you'll get to stay. No way. I can't risk going to the bad place. Well, maybe it's not actually like all that bad. Let's just get some information first. We'll ask Janet. Hey, Janet.
3: Hi there. How can I help you? What the fork? Who are you? I'm Janet. I'm the informational assistant here in the good place
4: she's like this walking database you can ask her about the creation of the universe or history oh
3: there was a guy who lived in avondale arizona around 2002 his name was kevin paltonic is he gay no really huh i guess he just didn't want to have sex with me that's correct well that's fine i wasn't that into him anyway yes you were
4: okay janet i have a question okay what is the bad place like
3: Oh, sorry. That is the one topic I'm not allowed to tell you about. I can only play you a brief audio clip of what is happening there right now.
4: Okay. <laughs> the
3: bear has well, it doesn't sound awesome.
1: Personally, I feel like this represents the ability for a superego itself to learn or some some a point of authority either within the psyche or within society actually advancing beyond their original requirements
0: i think because michael breaks away from what the the, the bad place authority is that makes him more complex, more relatable, and more human. And it's, it's, it's kind of written off as, well, it's because he's been spending so much time around humans. He's starting to take on their characteristics. Mm. But ultimately, I think it's because Michael has put himself in the position of trying to fake a good place to hurt people and and well it's not even it's not even to torture people it's effectively to delegate people to torturing each other yeah. but because that means he has to examine what the good place could be and how it might manifest
1: it gets him thinking
0: it gets him thinking about how that compares to what they do that the the bad place effectively works the way it does and carries on ad infinitum because nobody ever challenges it because nobody ever looks at what they're doing and why they just carry on doing what they taught, doing what they taught, doing what they taught over and over again for eternity never bringing in anything new now
1: It was new. We bought in scorpion lasers. It
0: does kind of violate <laughs> that. Uh, I can't remember, was it it's the second law of thermodynamics? That a, that a closed, under, closed system, system will, will tend, to tend towards, towards entropy. entropy. So, I mean, really, I suppose, over a long enough timeline, they are moving towards the heat death of the universe. Yes. <laughs> so there you go.
1: But they're not advancing very fast, but and they're, they're certainly not. not questioning themselves.
0: Absolutely. And I think that's where Michael... It's not that as a facet of the superego he starts to learn, he breaks away from the superego super ego can't learn it literally can only be programmed with So what he becomes his own
1: uh, individual autonomous unit yes. much like Janet herself who is was supposed to just maintain being like a computer uh, not a computer would uh, has become effectively a person mm. over time as she learns and fills up this bucket of experience
0: Absolutely and as we see the the Janets because there are billions of them you could, you get neutral janets, good janets and bad janets. And the the only essential differences between them when they come off the factory line is that good Janets are are helpful. And, and bad janets, janets, janets are desperately
1: unhelpful. unhelpful.
0: Exactly. They will they will sometimes do the opposite of what you want them to do, just to be awkward. But Janet...
1: I love the fact that they exemplify being desperately unhelpful as being constantly involved in one's own phone.
0: Yes, absolutely.
1: And the only things that will come out of your mouth, if you're going to interact with anyone, are insults.
0: Yes, absolutely. And the as we spend more time with the Janet that we get to know, and again, like Michael, being around people and constantly interacting with them and being put in situations where she has to make choices about whether to be helpful or not how helpful to be what decisions to make again she is moving away from that collective pre-programmed super ego and becoming more of an ego because other things are factoring into it and she has to find that balance between doing fulfilling the things she was intended to do and interacting with the people that she is interacting with.
1: It occurred to me the insult that Eleanor flings at Michael at the end of season one is, or the beginning of season two, is exactly what it exemplifies him as a character as he started and something that he would actually need to work hard to get away from. In the words of one of my actual friends, you're basic. It's a human insult. It's devastating. You're devastated right now. Yeah. He begins basic, and he has to become better.
0: Mm, yeah. It's it's why people who do lionise characters like the Joker, and that's who they want to be like, sweet Jesus, you're boring. You're so boring. You're looking at an example of how to be the worst person in the world, and you think that makes you edgy? You think that makes you interesting? My God, no.
1: I got news for you, Joker. You're You're basic. basic.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I'm hurt
1: to my core. (laughs) See,
0: (laughs) Hamill's Joker, less basic.
1: Less basic. There's more stuff going on there. Mm. I I love Heath Ledger's Joker. It's a fantastic performance. What I have a problem with is the people who react to it. Now, my question next is is who are these five? I think we've already kind of answered it in that we're all facets of us. One thing I noticed was um, there's another comedy show which we've once or twice mentioned uh, with your, your standard crappy human being who's actually good deep down, but they've just been too lazy to really break free from it. Your person who really wants to be just to good and serve humanity but is very uh, has finds making decisions very very difficult. Somebody who's enslaved to the idea that their siblings did better than they did and so grows up incredibly bitter and obsessed with their own status and somebody moronic who nonetheless brings joy simply by his presence and then there's this overseer computer type who kind of guides these morons through their impossible infinite voyage to get to We Don't Know Where, Red Dwarf.
0: Mm-hmm, yeah, yeah, I'll go with that.
1: Even down to episodes like The Inquisitor and Justice, where they make these empirical statements on their what they achieved in life and what they did not. Mm-hmm. Uh, we will probably do a Red Dwarf. Uh, I, I, I mentioned... Uh, I can't it's going
0: to sound very like this one.
1: Yeah. <laughs> no, no, we're going to do more, and it'll be yeah. more, more uh, smeggy. But... Um, <laughs> I mentioned Americans won't get this, and then I got a slew of Americans on Twitter going, actually, we all know Red Dwarf, thank you very much. Well, good. That's news to me. (laughs) Last I heard, they tried to do an American pilot, and it failed miserably.
0: Yeah, uh, Red Dwarf is something that I have loved since a very, very young age, and it's always struck me as being peculiarly British in terms of its sense of humour.
1: Well, Doctor Who's popular in America now, so Mm -hmm. there you go. Screen Prism exemplified the main four as Eleanor as the will, mm-hmm. Cheedy as the conscience, mm-hmm. Jason as personal kindness mm-hmm. because although he is a fool, he's actually sweet-natured On and says nice base, things is, to he people. Is very
0: supportive and kind. To
1: people. And it's his first impulse as well. He's not spiteful at all. That makes him different to the cat who insults people all yes. the time.
2: Hey there, Jason. Oh, hey homie. Uh, I mean, Jason. Who is Jason? I am a monk.
1: And Tahani, the cat's more like bad Janet, actually, (laughs) thinking about it. And Tahani uh, is community kindness, the idea of doing good things for a lot of people. And all of them are broken and flawed and believe the wrong things and need to do their jobs better. Mm,
0: Yeah, because ultimately, if if you skew in any one direction of those things to the exclusion of the others, Mm. then your life is going to be imbalanced.
1: Yeah, the conscience without the will means you know what is good, Mm -hmm. but you don't have the will to do what is good.
0: Absolutely, and the will without the conscience is blindly stomping through life, doing what it wants and stepping on people.
1: Yeah, and occasionally feeling that pricking sensation and going, ah, don't know what that was, probably gas. (laughs) Must
0: have made some bad shellfish. (laughs) And that is likely, because she eats a lot of shellfish.
1: Shrimp. Would you put shrimp down your brow? No. Yes.
0: <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, my God, I've just realised it. She's shellfish.
1: She's so very shellfish.
0: Yeah.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Face it, dude. I'm the best thing that ever happened to you. Because guess what, cheaty. You're basic.
1: We're go- the next bit we're going to talk about is the way that the scenario changes as we go through. So obviously full spoilers. We've, we've spoiled a hell of a lot already, but we're just going to assume everyone's now seen it. This is a very nimble and sprightly show. It doesn't rest on its laurels. It won't just do the same thing again. Three seasons so far, every one very distinct from the others. First one, it changes the game of life insofar as Eleanor, now you're in heaven, hide. And that's her imperative immediately. She's like, right, I've got to keep who I am hidden from all of these terrible people. And that becomes the imperative at the beginning of the season. This is why, by the way, binge watching this over other TV shows that are just the same thing over and over again. Like If you watched 90s TV shows over and over again, Mm. it's like, oh my God, I'm on a date with two different women on the same night. I'm going to have to run back and forth across this restaurant. And it's, yeah, that's a funny situation. But, like, if you watch 10, 20 of those episodes in a row, it's not really going anywhere Mm. until, like, if it's friends, like, maybe the season finale, something major will happen. Although, actually, the whole we were on a break thing does, for its benefit, Mm. take place in the middle of a season and play itself out in, in a not especially nice way, which was. Ballsy of Friends. Mm -hmm. By the way, we should have done Friends. We watched all of it on Blu-ray a few years ago, and we should have covered it. And we're never going to watch them all again. I don't think.
0: But the there's a difference between the the kind of TV that effectively becomes comfort TV because you watch the, the episodes. Week in, week out, at the same time slot every week, and it becomes part of your routine and it becomes mm. part of a, a kind of comfort blanket, soothing thing. And or if you're feeling
1: bad, you that. stick on the DVD and just watch old episodes exactly. because it makes you feel like that's what we watched all of Friends in like twenty sixteen when we felt like absolute garbage. Yeah. We needed that sense of stability every day. Just like, you know, oh, let's just have fun with these guys.
0: Yeah. And it's on Netflix now, so if you're still in that mindset. Yeah. It's
1: there. Also, if you watch it in HD, it's in the original widescreen presentation, which it was because it was shot on film and it looks really good, whereas it was chopped down for the TV. Obviously, it was chopped down to, it was always, they had the square in mind. But watching it in widescreen in HD actually does kind of change things. Mm. Anyway.
0: But the, yeah, so you've got that sort of very repetitive comfort TV. Then you've got the designed for binge watching, mm. effectively extended film
1: yeah, TV. Yeah, Chipman said that about uh, Daredevil, that uh, effectively what you're watching there is a long-ass film yeah. over eight
4: episodes. Absolutely.
0: But then you do get, the, there are a handful of shows. I would say Friends is one. I would say Quantum Leap was another. Frasier. Frasier, yeah, where it did the a combination of the repetition of the framework, mm. but it would gradually progress, and you would get yeah. uh, that feeling of things are very definitely moving forward.
1: There'd usually be a relationshipy scenario like Cheers with Sam and Diane Indeed. being slowly pushed together over a number of seasons. Yeah. In Obviously in Friends, it was Ross and Rachel pushed together, then away from each other, then back slowly together again, and then Chandler and Monica. Frazier it's all about Niles and Daphne slowly coming together, and... Mm. Uh,
0: Um, But I would say that the... That's
1: what kept people coming back, Yeah, the idea of an overarching thing. But in this scenario, it's not about relationships, although there are lots of relationships in there. It's not about who's going to end up with each other, it's where are they going to end up. Mm.
0: Well, I would say the difference between those types of shows are, are they envisioned initially to be a show that will just run... Until it doesn't anymore, in which case they need to sustain that the same thing, the same thing, the same thing for a long period of time. Also
1: in the 90s, people liked the same thing over and over again.
0: Indeed. Or is it something that has been designed to have a beginning, a middle and an end and get you Hmm. progressing on through some fairly whip-quick, ways of thinking and one of the things I really love about this is that it is designed for binge watching mm. that it is something that will progress how you think about what's going on on the screen at a fair old pace it doesn't let up there is there's no filler something. shows yeah. they just
1: get it done
0: yeah but I don't think that this is really a show that I could go I want to I really want to see that episode
1: today. yeah no you watch it through it's, it's, it'd be like reading just a chapter of a book
0: yeah yeah
1: you know I could watch the Holiday Armadillo episode, no problem.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You can take them out of context. You can put them into whatever situation. But with this, it feels more like I would want to sit down and watch yeah. an entire season. Maybe not all three, all in one go. That would be...
1: Excessive. Yeah. But it, it facilitates that. Like you, it's, it's compulsive as well. Mm, yeah. um, somebody uh, suggested that this was lost, done Right. Now I never saw the end of Lost, but from the sounds of it, they started the show with a "Ooh, what's going on?" and the showrunners themselves were like, "Yeah, what is going on? Let's re- keep riding, and we'll see what's happening." And
0: there you go. That proves my point. Lost was done in the mind of "Let's just keep going until we don't," and as a result, went off into realms that it didn't hmm. that did not fit the format.
1: And specifically, from the sounds of it, at the end, the the, the question of Lost was. What is this place? What has happened to these people? There was a fairly obvious answer. And then throughout the episodes, you're like, well, no, that can't be the case. That can't be the case. And then after several, it was like the specificity of this means it definitely can't be the case. And at the end, oh, no, it was the case. Are you forking kidding me? Whereas fact, this, it doesn't really pose that question. No. It poses different questions all the time. Absolutely.
0: And I would say this as well. JJ Abrams and his forking mystery box.
1: I love JJ, but fork that mystery box.
0: Absolutely. Here's the thing. You can do the mystery box, JJ. You can put it in front of people and you can keep them hanging on for wanting to know what's in that box as but long as you, want.
1: you gotta But eventually, you've got to open it.
0: you've got to know what's in the box. If you don't know what's in the box... You are setting yourself up for failure because sooner or later you're going to have to open it. Oh, what's in the box?
1: Or some other talented fella's going to come along, open up the box and go, right, it's this, this, and this. And people are going to go,
2: that wasn't what I wanted from the box! Bad Star Wars!
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, uh Yeah. You, so, now you're in heaven, hide. Then, now you're in heaven try to be better then you might be able to stay in heaven otherwise you go into the bad place it doesn't sound awesome then you're in the medium place partially enjoy season one is an exploration of okay so if this is heaven and it runs by these rigid rules is there a way we can be good in a way that's not detracted from by our intentions of being good to get as Maya Rudolph says later on as the judge moral dessert to be rewarded for it performing karmic acts because you're like oh the karma I'm getting back on this one so it poses the philosophical question can we be truly good
0: Mm, yeah and also when it becomes apparent what kind of system is at play here they move very quickly from Tahani's standard. I demand to see a manager and insist that I be allowed to stay in violation of the rules in this particular instance because it, you know, I personally clearly am privileged enough that the rules shouldn't really apply to me. If they count against me If they count for me, I'll stick with the rules But if they're going to disadvantage me Maybe I can persuade somebody to, you know Just let me slip through the net just this once
1: This, by the way, is an almost universal trait Shared by the wealthy
0: Yes, indeed, particularly the wealthy white But
1: The rules the... should apply to the proles Not mm. to us, not their to rulers us,
0: yes. we, we designed the rules We shouldn't have to follow them as well <laughs> Um, But they move very quickly from that to, clearly this system is forked. How can we change the system?
1: And the uh, conclusion that Eleanor reaches is, oh, you know what, I'm just going to do a good thing for you people, which is the true good. The idea of actually... Can, like She's not trying to game the system at that stage. She has made a huge amount of progress since episode one. It's only a, a relatively short amount of time that uh, uh, Eleanor goes from being comedically terrible as a person to actually being someone that we can see is struggling to be good.
0: Mm. Yeah. And I, the the way that this is achieved by showing you flashbacks of how she's behaved in her past life. Again, it reinforces her relatability and her humanity because you do get to see that although she's behaved this way, it has left her isolated, it's left her lonely, and she she Shouldn't be in the sense that nobody should be. Nobody should be that isolated. But if you behave terribly and push people away, it will happen.
1: Then we get to a difficult scenario where this is the bad place. Holy forking shirt balls. And there's the click that happens. Now, several people asked, they get their memories erased here. And then it happens again and again and again in the early stages of season two of The Good Place where they are put through this scenario over and over again by Michael whereby he is trying to get a different outcome that they don't figure out that they're in the bad place and they don't work out how to defy him and uh, go against the rules. And he wants it to sustain. He's trying to get a scenario where they will be actively loathsomely cruel to each other and it doesn't bloody happen. And so he keeps resetting. Now, the question we got was, is this short in the characters? Because effectively, if you want to look at it on paper, all that character development from season one goes out the window with the click. No. No. Why?
0: For me, and everybody will have a different take on this, but for me, it's because Michael wipes their memories. He does not erase time. The things they did... The ways that Although they,
1: they are operating in the good place in a way that is outside of time. Yeah. It's described as the word Jeremy Bearamy in that time is, the, rather than being a straight line, is a cursive spelling of the word Jeremy Bearamy, roughly that shape. Which means that it loops back on itself repeatedly. Mm. And uh, uh, th- there's several... You know, fun nods, especially in season three, to uh, Lovecraftian horror. Um, there's an episode called "Chidi sees the Time Knife," where he's describing something that would explode the human mind, and Michael says, "Yes, yes, the Time Knife." It's. It's it's looking at, at us, us as humans as these c- barely sentient creatures who can't fathom things outside, beyond our own viewpoints. And even if you're thinking as deeply as Chidi does, mm. it's still only part of the biggest picture, which itself, like I say, is terrifying. But the fact that it's waved off as, yes, yes, we've all seen the time knife, yeah. is hilarious and, and kind of works against the horror. It, it makes it more personable. Mm.
0: The idea that somebody might be able to see this for what it is, even if we maybe can't. Yeah is somewhat helpful. But it's appropriate that it's Cheedy who goes through that because his life and how he has encouraged himself to think on several different planes at the same time, which has broken him as a human and made it very hard for him to behave in a human way. But that's sort of trying to open up his range of conceptual time... To see all of those different possible outcomes to those different decisions mm. all at once. I think I mentioned this when we were talk- when we did the Goodwill Hunting show. Actually, yeah. you can. Oh, I can't even remember how I phrased it, but you you can you can think in terms of several different decisions and try to work out where those paths are going to lead you, but you cannot live them all at once.
1: And again, season two it culminates in having to argue. In favour of all of them going to the good place, and we find out in season three, it's going to be a bit of Jeremy Bear me here, uh, that uh, the point system is broken and flawed, and no one's gone to the good place in hundreds of years. There's a breakdown of it that suggests that even if 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 a man bought his wife flowers a hundred years ago, was it he handpicked them himself?
0: Uh, that was an element of it mm. that he found some roses and
1: yeah. He could find them himself, pick them, deliver them to her. She'd feel good about it. Now, if that same man using 2019 technology orders some flowers for his mother, he's going through various companies that use various exploitative practices, which means that even if he gets a little bit of good from the being nice to his mother, he's actually doing quite a bit of bad stuff and supporting quite a few bad people in the doing of that. Mm -hmm. And each of those is linked because you're empowering the bad people to do even more bad things. This, by the way, is why electing terrible people into office is the worst of possible outcomes, because it empowers the worst of possible people to feel like they're actually okay doing terrible things such as race hate this is why well this politician is exactly like this politician because they're both celebrities is a false equivalency and incredibly dangerous to think like Mm
5: -hmm.
0: i would say there is an argument to be made that you can pinpoint the periods in human history where the point system would have taken a shift yeah okay
1: industrial revolution
0: Definitely. Absolutely definitely. The The development of the steam engine and that period in time would have made it much, much harder for people, even at the lower end of society, to... Not do things that then have a knock-on yeah. effect on other people. If
1: you're considering that the internal combustion engine is not only not kind to everybody around you, but not kind to the earth, every time you turn on any kind of industrial machine, mm-hmm. you're causing some hurt.
0: It's the root of the forked position we're in right now. Yes. Going forward, the invention of the internet.
1: Yes. There's got to be something definitely. in between that.
0: There probably, yeah, there probably is something in between. Those oh, oh
1: two. Uh, World War One, World War Two, the invention of the atomic bomb advertising taking a serious hold on culture, the proliferation of automobiles.
0: Yeah. I was trying to pinpoint like specific moments, but yes, all of those things yeah. definitely would have would have affected things. And if you go backwards from the industrial revolution, the agricultural revolution, and the point at which human beings decided the concept of I own this land, this this piece of land that I've put a fence around mm. was okay. When somebody did that and everybody else went, yeah, all right then.
1: Are you saying there are Neanderthals in heaven right now? Going, well, at least I was a good Neanderthal. Yeah. (laughs) Because Neanderthals didn't
0: do that with land. They didn't put fences around things and say, if you want to use that land,
1: pay me. My first album is going to be called Heaven is Full of Neanderthals. It's quite
0: so small. There's not very many of
1: them. So uh, we were posed a question by Spooky Floof and Sean. How would you fix the flawed point system? That's a doozy. Because we have to apply our overview of the world, which is minor relative to the vastness of all creation.
0: Okay. First off, you would have to apply some kind of inflation framework. Mm -hmm. Secondly, there would have to be some kind of adjustment for individual knowledge and standards?
1: I would say thirdly, intent. The, the system would have to drop into your brain at the moment you have to choose between these two things or multiple things. And it, has, it would have to weigh up. If we're going to get this granular, it would have to weigh up whether you weigh up these bad things. But then
0: how do you assess how people weigh up these things. Because Chidi weighs up these things. Chidi never does the thing he's trying to make the decision about.
1: Do I vaccinate my child? No, because of ignorance, or no, because of willful ignorance.
0: Okay, in this day and age, I don't think it would be possible to not... Unless you literally live somewhere where vaccines are not available. That's a different scenario. Mm -hmm. But if you live in a world where vaccines are readily available and you're choosing not to do it...
1: That's an act of evil? Is that what you're saying?
0: I don't know that I'd go so far as to say...
1: Evil.
0: Because I'm not generally comfortable with that word. Or that constant. Would it get you bad but points? It would definitely get you bad points. Okay, all right. No, no, no. I just Depending on how
1: many children, your unvaccinated petri dish of germs infected and killed.
0: If we eliminate the, I can't vaccinate my child because they have an immune compromisation and it actually would hurt them to have the vaccination, it would, it would make them ill. Yes. That's different. That's what herd immunity is meant to compensate for. Mm -hmm. But if your child, if there is no legitimate health reason why your child should not have that vaccination and you choose not to do it...
1: I love how, by the way, as an interjection, we've gone from the trolley conundrum, which is a real brain scratcher, to an act of such dumb-headed hate of science and being told what to do by people so much smarter than you that this is the conundrum this is the moral conundrum do i make it so that my child isn't going to die and hurt and kill other children as a result
0: well here's the thing there are so many Hmm. elements to that particular scenario where the outcome is yes i'm going to vaccinate my child even if you add modifiers to that like okay if you Say, so for example, you had to pay for that vaccination mm-hmm. and you didn't have the money. And it was very, very hard for you to get that money. But in most places, they will vaccinate children, if not for free, then at least for a a relatively nominal fee.
1: If you then stole a loaf of bread to pay for the child to be vaccinated... I'm not sure how this works. If you then stole... (laughs) If
0: you stole bread to pay for your child to be vaccinated. (laughs) If you
1: stole a wallet or or you found a wallet and then you took the money out because it was an out-of-state driver's licence, would...
0: And used it to pay for your child's vaccination. Is that bad, then good? I think the good points. For the vaccination, yep. outweigh the bad points for stealing the money okay. in that particular Well, certain, if nothing
1: else, you sense. are very aware you've got to get your child vaccinated. Absolutely. Your brain is in the but right place. Even if... If, however, you not only don't vaccinate your child, leaving your child in danger and other children around them, but actually actively campaign for other mothers not to vaccinate their children, you're spreading the bad.
0: Yeah. By now, even if you are still... Not doing the vaccination thing because of something an idiot doctor said. And I'm doing air quotes around doctor at Mm -hmm. the moment because, frankly, I think somebody needs to take his freaking degrees off him about links between vaccines and autism. There's been so much information. If If you had access to the Internet and newspapers that gave you that false impression in the first place years ago... You've had access to the things that would give you the information that it is not true over the intervening years. And even even if you still thought it was, this is something that uh, G. Willow Wilson tweeted earlier today. (laughs) Twilted. That even if, even if you had every reason in the world to still think that was true, there is a window in a child's life when symptoms of autism develop. When that window is closed, go get your child vaccinated. There is no reason that they should get to their teenage years and still not have had it done.
1: Again, that requires a modicum of research rather than going, vaccines, definitely bad. Yeah. Are we now saying that Jim Carrey and Jenny McCarthy are going to the bad place? They, they have been very public anti-vaxxers, I
0: think they're, I regardless think they're of all the reach, brilliant
1: films they've done.
0: Their reach of influence, <clears throat> I think they're going to get... Bad points for every person who makes that decision because Jim Carrey or Jenny McCarthy said so. Hmm.
1: And, you know, if you're going to trust the guy who was in Dumb and Dumber.
0: And liar, liar. (laughs) How about we put the liar, liar curse on him again and say, now go and tell people what you think about vaccinations, Jim.
1: I
2: can't lie!
1: Commendable, Mr. (laughs) Carrey, but I'm still waiting for a reason. (laughs) Only it's the judge from the good place. Yeah. All the bad places. This is a this public
0: case. service announcement, folks. Get your kids vaccinated.
1: Everyone knows. I know. Everyone who's sane knows. But this is willful ignorance that uh, has gripped the world. The... Uh, the backslide into dormant racism like uh, watching on Twitter uh, hatred for Native Americans being stoked up in a way that actually hasn't really been around in like publicly for a long fucking time mm. like it's been like the, the, the general word on the Native American people has been okay they're, they're a, a, a good noble people who uh, you know forked over for their land. Let's just go easy on them. Uh, that's been the sort of the key word uh, in uh, um, American society. Now it's, wait a minute, one of these uppity engines wants to get into the White House? Well, racism at the ready. Backsliding into that uh, means just like bad points are going all over the world right now. And it is terrifying and exhausting to be part of.
0: And... It's also not something that a person can really, unless you have the financial ability to insulate yourself from all of it, to go and live on a remote island somewhere where none of this can touch you, or to go and live in a remote penthouse somewhere where none of this can touch you. In which case, congratulations, you are the social upper class from Blade Runner, enjoy your apocalyptic society you can't just sit there and say well they're bad people and so they will be punished in the afterlife it's coming later on they'll end up in the bad place i'll end up in the good place there we go i don't have to worry about it
1: it's washing your hands of humanity the guy who ends up ha- having a lot of good place points is the guy who worked out what the good place was when he was uh, stoned off his brain and he has achieved being just generally good by separating himself from society. Mm. So do they glean from that that it's not so much that he's just being good as that he's not connected to all these things that make that take the points away.
0: That's part of it, but they even when they look at his total they work out he's not getting into the good place. Yeah. So Really, he's like a, an amped-up version of Chidi. He's devoted so much time and energy to working out the exact point cost of every action that he makes, and then trying to do something. If he does anything accidentally bad, he tries to do something to counterbalance it so that he can keep himself again. The this right is seeking moral desert. Exactly, but again, and yeah, he's not doing it for any particular highfalutin ethical reason. Which at least, because Chidi doesn't know about the system, mm. he is doing it out of a desire to be good. Although he may not quite know why.
1: One thing that I didn't expect uh, was at the end of season two, they, Michael clicks his fingers, Thanos style again, well, they, they end up getting um, sent back to the world mm. and they're alive again. This is the end of the good place. Like th- this is how after two brilliant seasons, they go back to the world with their memories Erased, but neural pathways have been set. Certain... This is why, no, they aren't being shortchanged as characters. They've gotten used to doing things in a way that becomes muscle memory reflexive in their brains. So Eleanor escapes death and feels unusually, especially for her, interested in the idea of being good because of everything she's done, even though she's been blanked and blanked and blanked again. Neural pathways are the reasons why these characters, while they might have individual memories removed, are growing as their brains, whether spiritual or not, become accustomed to being better people.
2: Mm.
0: We work on habits.
1: What you're describing here is reincarnation. A soul is born. A soul drops into a uh, fetus, is born, goes through their life, dies, having acquired all that experience, then comes back as another person. All of that experience is there. They are wiser than when they first started out. They don't remember who they were in that original life, but they are more than what they would have been had they been fresh in this second body. Third, fourth, fifth, sixth, tenth, thousandth. It's all accumulating in this bucket if reincarnation is in fact a thing and when you get those feelings of I should be doing this when you get those feelings of familiarity a lot of it's going to be what you were taught but again if if this is an actual concept that we can cleave to a lot of it's going to be reflexive neural pathways in the spiritual psyche that you are acclimatised to being this kind of person because it's who you've been. To simplify even further, you do a thing enough in one life, it's going to feel natural to do it in the next. That's all. If that makes sense. Mm,
0: It does. It makes a lot of sense. And it actually... Okay. I'm going to say this, and if you want to cut it out, you can cut it out because it might not actually end up being all that relevant. But I remember when I was very young, probably around about eight or nine, I had a very, very vivid dream about something that I concluded after I'd woken up and given it some thought was about my gut instinct in terms of life, death, afterlife, how to live, to fold that in. So it was a long corridor with the door I'd just come through Another door at the far end, and a door off to the left and a door off to the right. The door off to the left went into a room with red marble walls and floor, a long table in the middle with lots of feast-type food on it, and shelves around the walls. And an
1: eyeless man...
0: No, no.
1: (laughs) ...sitting there... It's motionless, and you were told not to not eat the to food. Eat anything. I'm no. sorry. <laughs>
0: That's okay. Shelves around the room that figures from history who we can agree unequivocally are, were bad people sitting on the shelves.
1: Hitler on the shelf?
0: Yes, Hitler on the shelf, various other people. Rubbing in, shoulders in
1: with Paul. Pot. Hitler's
0: bracket, sitting on the shelves. So basically you are trapped in this room that is too red, too hot. There is wonderful food spread out beneath you that you can't get to because you're you're too high up the room to the right or the door to the right led out into effectively a meadow open expanse of grass with hills and trees with fruit on them and white sky for some reason rather than blue but lots of people in there just sort of generally happily frolicking around like lambs and just enjoying themselves And the point being that if you were on that side, you could freely come back and forth into the Red Room to get food. So you had the freedom to cross the corridor.
1: So being in hell is effectively being the ghost at the feast, literally. Yeah.
0: yeah. But then you also had the choice to not be in either of those places and just carry on along the corridor, go back through the door at the other end, and that would bring you back out into life of some form.
1: Yeah. So you can't experience anything while you're in the other place. All the experience happens right here. Exactly. Okay. Uh, Another philosophical representation of heaven and hell I uh, heard when I was very young. And I was like, well, that makes a hell of a lot of sense. Uh, A guy went to study both places, went down to hell and found that the whole thing, rather than being a fiery pit, was just this enormous dish of Chinese food. Uh, And everyone in hell was sat around it with these pool cue length, Chopsticks, But because they were so long, they couldn't get them up to their mouths. So their torment was, you've got these delicious spicy egg rolls, and you can almost get to them, but not quite. So they were permanently in this tantalus-style scenario of being very, very close to something gratifying, but unable to get to it. And that was them, stuck forever, nobody having fun. He went up to heaven, and it was precisely the same scenario. Giant Chinese bowl, and everyone sitting around with massive pool cue length chopsticks and the only difference was they were feeding each other so simple so pure straightforward that whole thing about hell is other people is not just being around people is is anxiety ridden it's that other people Jean-Paul Sartre said this one it's that other people with bad qualities we recognise in ourselves make us feel terrible about who
2: we are There is a party Everyone is there Everyone will leave At exactly the same time When this party's over It will start again Will not be any different be exactly the same whatever. Oh, heaven. heaven is a place a place when nothing nothing ever.
1: So, like I said, the end of season two is the actual end. They're Back to Life Again, it's a perfectly cromulent end to a TV show. They uh, get to now experience life with what they've learned with these new neural pathways even if they can't remember the specificity of it or indeed each other. And then Eleanor goes to see Chidi. And it creates this whole new third season I hadn't expected to happen where they're in the real world debating what's going on in the good place. And you've got the um, Michael and uh, Janet and now the fish is out of water, unable to really affect this world in the way that they could the other. Um, And it illustrates at the very beginning, um, in fact, not before we even get to season three, Eleanor tries to be good and it's exhausting It's got that kind of montage of a person pulling their bootstraps up and just, you know, pitching in and being a good person, which would normally be the end of a movie. Mm. And it's like, okay, now I'm... You know, it's like uh, Seth Rogen at the end of um, uh, Knocked Up. and It's like, now I'm finally... I can person at last. Mm. And it exhausts her, and she needs more. So she goes off in search of Chidi, and so we get more, which is surprising and gratifying, and it's a really good way of suggesting... It's never really just over. You don't get that happy ending. Everything's fine. I almost feel like <clears throat> whatever the... Because the end of season three is it's kind of inconclusive. And right, now you're running the good place because Michael can't. It, it almost feels like the, that the last episode should just be a last episode rather than the last episode. Mm. They should almost just be cancelled. And it's like, well, what's going to happen to them next? Because...
0: We'll never know.
1: We'll never know. Like it, it, it's We're working with infinite time here and going, right... If it's not going to be now they're back on Earth living their lives, what the hell could it be? Mm. This is obviously speculative. It's going to date in a few years' time when we get the absolute final episode. Indeed.
0: but that I'm sure
1: it'll be great, though.
0: That period of Eleanor trying to live a better life and it being exhausting, that's how it is when you try to self-improve, especially if you're breaking the habit of a lifetime. And especially since the... Isolationist and uh, other people rejecting and badly behaving ways that she evolved were coping mechanisms. There were things that she put into place, whether consciously or unconsciously, to protect herself from the pretty cold, unfeeling environment she grew up in. So not only is she having to break habits that have spent decades imprinting themselves into her way of doing things, and ultimately the human body and the human brain is biologically evolved to conserve energy. It will do the thing that costs you the least energy. And that means autopilot. That means doing the thing that you've repeated often enough that you can do it without having to think, because thinking costs energy. and and that takes extra food and we don't always have that available so it's going down the path of we've done this before this is easy let's do the easy thing that's what the body does and you have to fight that if you want to change it and that is expensive in terms of energy consumption And so you have to think about, is it worth it? And on top of that, she's then got this little voice in the back of her head that says, but you started doing this because it was safe. You started doing this because it hurts when you don't. When you let people in and you try to connect with people and you try to be kind, you get hurt. So she's fighting that as well and that's how she ends up back in the loop and it isn't something that she can do on her own and that's why the draw to Chidi becomes so important. That draw to other people and being able to bounce those attempts to be better off someone else is absolutely crucial. You, if, you, if you are completely on your own it can only ever be a medium place.
1: We never really fully answered the whole point system thing. I don't think a human being could figure out the point system or or suggest one that isn't horribly flawed. One thing that is imperative, no one must know about it. Yeah. There's no point having a point system if anyone knows about it.
0: And on the flip side, there's no point having a point system if no one knows about it.
1: This is why I feel like the greater mysteries of where we go after we die must always be kept from the human race. Because if we can know about it, we can quantify it, we get BuzzFeed articles talking about the 10 best ways to get into heaven. It cheapens the whole thing and becomes an algorithm that the human race can game. Hmm. We can't be trusted with shit like this.
2: Yeah,
0: But then what we've evolved and what we've ended up with... And what religions essentially are is let's speculate that this might be what happens and let's behave in a way that this particular book tells us to behave just in case it's right. Yeah. How about here's where we are, what we do has an impact on life here, so regardless of what happens afterwards, how about be nice to each other?
1: It's a good start. And that's the thing. It's a good start.
0: Be excellent to each other.
1: And And party on, on dudes. (laughs) Who'd have thought that the great philosophers Bill S. Preston Esquire and Ted Theodore Logan had the answer all along? Me. Yeah, me too.
0: (laughs) It's why Keanu Reeves is secretly God. Uh (laughs)
1: He didn't make it particularly subtle when he was being Jesus Neo. No, that's true. More on that next week, folks, when we cover The Matrix. But if you imagine heaven working on an algorithm like YouTube, look how forked YouTube is. Oh dear we God, can't yes. even be trusted with forking YouTube. Nope. Like, the way to get to basically be in heaven is to be PewDiePie. Mm.
2: Mm.
0: But then what's going to the bad place? Is it the bot that creates it?
1: What's going to the bad place is the person trying their darndest to get uh, all of their fantastic stuff seen on YouTube, and 312 people see it.
0: They're living in the bad place right now.
1: They are right now, yep.
0: That's it. YouTube is the bad place.
1: Yeah. Last July, the Terminator thing.
2: Mm.
1: Okay, that sounds very specific, and it makes me feel like you've actually done
2: it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. A stranger on the bus, trying to make his way. Home.
1: Now we asked you to ask us questions about the good place, and we actually ended up with loads, but looking at the tone of most of them, I decided it would derail our show since our interests lie in the philosophical ramifications and the characters, rather than quite a bit of picking at weaknesses in the show's narrative structure as a TV series. Several of you asked about the characters resetting, so we covered that. However, one fun one was from Matthew A. Siebert, who asks, Describe your personal medium place. Did you do this one?
0: I have given it some thought, and I've come up with a couple of elements. It was a bit difficult to coalesce it into a solid thing. Okay, uh,
1: let me give you mine, yes. and then you say yours. Okay. I am living in a travel lodge. I only have a basic TV package and nothing brilliant is ever on. I have a standard definition DVD player and copies of the following movies. The Saint, starring Val Kilmer. Saint Elmo's Fire. I, Robot, which is scratched and keeps skipping. And Season 1 of Grey's Anatomy, Missing Disc 3. There is also the entirety of Dragon Ball Z Season 8. The music I have is Jollification by the Lightning Seeds on CD and, ironically, Postcards from Heaven by the Lighthouse family. My only book is The Catcher in the Rye, which may be a celebrated classic, but imagine only having that to read. The only video games available are Ridge Racer 4 on PlayStation 1, PAL version, Tony Hawk Pro Skater on the PSP, FIFA 2004 on PlayStation 2, and Blue Dragon on the Xbox 360, which has a wired third-party controller. I have no internet whatsoever. The only food available is cheap supermarket pizza and off-brand lemon barley water. The motel has decaffeinated Nestle coffee granules and a mini kettle, but no sugar and only non-dairy skimmed milk pouches. The shower head always slips, so I have to hold it in place when I wash. There's a small but very noticeable crack in one corner of the TV. The bed sheets smell faintly of soup and the window only opens a little bit. I can go for a walk around the car park, but the surrounding fields are muddy. The main road is always busy, and it's always just about to rain. I always have a little bit of a headache as a result. My alarm goes off at 6.45am, but there's never anything to do, and since it's January, it doesn't even get light for an hour after I wake. And here's the kicker. Every time I write, or craft, or create something, when I wake up the next day, my room is reset. The created thing is gone, but I can still remember it, though I will never have anybody to share it with, except for Philip, the concierge of the motel, and the only other person I ever get to talk to. Very little impresses Philip, and whenever I show him something I've made, the first words out of his mouth are niggling criticism. Philip is reset every night, same as everything else I create or destroy, and that's my life forever in the medium place.
0: What? See, that doesn't sound like a medium place to me. <laughs> that sounds like a bad place.
1: Well, like, that's the thing. Any medium place you could describe mm-hmm. would become a hell. It would
0: become eventually a hell. Uh,
1: eventually, over a long enough timeline, you'd go fucking crazy See, in in Mindy St. Clair's house.
0: Here's the thing. For me...
1: Nope, oh, it's my masturbation time.
0: And, and there you <coughs> go. Right. The essence of the medium place, which prevents it from being quite a medium place and actually edges it into being slightly a good place for me mm-hmm. is the fact that you are alone because it's so tailored, you can't share it with anybody. Now, yes, that means that thing life will never hit the heights of ecstasy. Life will never reach those moments of uh, raw joy that I get from connecting and sharing with another person but for me to truly be a medium place there would always have to be one or two people around stopping me from doing the things that I really want to do Philip and engaging me in conversation about things that I can talk about but I don't really want to talk about
1: Philip likes to talk about the weather obviously yeah. this is groundhog day mm. it's just that I don't get to go out into Punxsutawney and make other people's lives better Indeed. that would frustrate the fork out of me yeah
0: Yeah, exactly. And like I said, that knocks it down to being that is slightly...
1: Even as a cosmic joke, you could make one of the films uh, I have to watch, Groundhog Day on VHS. Mm. And it's like, yeah, I know, I know. What am I supposed to do with this every day?
0: But in, in terms of the things that would make my personal medium place, I think it would come down to having access to a small library of books, but they're all library books... And they never have the first book in any series, Mm. (laughs) which incidentally is my teenage years. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We had a very small library in my hometown and they very rarely had the first book of anything. And music wise, I would have access to the entire discography of The Eagles, except
1: Hotel California. California. (laughs) Is it the live version or the not live versions?
0: Oh, God. Okay, the live versions of the entire discography apart from Hotel California. Because
1: if you remember, Mindy has the complete eagles, but it's only the live live versions. versions.
0: Okay, yep, yep, we'll go with that. Brilliant. Oh, God, my medium place is Mindy Sinclair.
1: Yes. (laughs) You'd only have... Oh, mind you, actually, if you had only... Um, second books. You'd have The Vampire Lestat rather than Interview with the Vampire. So that's a better sure. book.
0: It is a better book, but I wouldn't have um
1: Would you cut out bits to make pornography or?
0: I might. <laughs> I might, you know? Cause when I'm really bored I do tend to write slash fic a little bit. So
1: Again though, was there no paper in <laughs> It was just to illustrate that it becomes a medium place for other people because so many bits of the books are cut out by Mindy.
0: That's true. And also, I think Mindy's imagination (coughs) has probably taken quite a pounding from all the cocaine that she did in life.
1: True, true.
0: Whereas I I don't have that. See, this is the thing. Wherever there's just me, there is also my imagination.
1: Interesting that her meat brain would have taken a pounding from the cocaine, but uh, would her soul still be that well,
0: that's, bereft. that's kind of the point of all of these afterlife stories though isn't it that your your residual digital self image as it were follows most of the neural pathways that you had in life mm. out of sheer force of habit yeah so over time and with effort you probably could reshape the way your your now entirely composed of conceptual entity brain worked mm. but you'd have to focus So, yeah, my medium place contains an awful lot of distraction.
1: See, mine doesn't. Mine's the opposite. There's nothing to distract myself with. Mm. What we're describing here is kind of a purgatory.
0: Yeah, and that's the other thing as well. Because our medium places would be so different, we wouldn't be able to be together ever. And that makes it purgatory in and of itself.
1: Yeah, that's true. Uh, One more question from Cubano Reeves, who asks, I love this show. However, I have difficulty describing it in a way that will get people to watch. Do you have any strategies for doing so? Aside from doing a podcast on it and pretty much ordering our listeners to give up 14 hours of their lives, I have a very simple solution myself. Just get them to watch the pilot. It is an amazingly economical piece of television. It takes 22 minutes to lay down pretty much everything you need to know in a style that exemplifies how it will continue. If you get to the end of episode one and say, nah, then the series isn't for you. Ideally wish All pilots were like this, rather than the usual floundering around while everybody gets introduced in a shallow kind of way and a small thing happens and nothing is well formed. With this one, there is a supreme confidence and an already firm affection for the material and the characters, and that carries you forward... I hate being told to watch a show that doesn't get good until episode nine. I don't have the time, especially if it's an hour long. Like, the difference between 22 minutes of The Good Place and every episode's an hour... It's night and day. That's why I tend to gravitate to more towards comedy, which tends to be 22 minutes long, rather than drama, which is 45 minutes to an hour. I don't have the time. We started to cover The Expanse for a podcast commission, and after two hours, I still had no clue, and even less interest, as to the names of the characters, what motivated them, or really, what was going on. Can you imagine a movie doing well if the credits rolled and you had just seen a bunch of stuff happen inconclusively but were assured by fans of the series that if you persisted then the fourth sequel would be really good this is why we won't do tv commissions sight unseen anymore our time on earth is precious all of us we have none to waste be great right now and start the fast and furious movies at number five <laughs> true
0: it is true true yeah.
1: You can go back and watch one through four later.
0: You can, if you choose to. Yeah. Frankly, you can save three to see at the end anyway.
1: Oh, yeah. Continuity. There you go. Actually, after seven, before eight.
0: Oh, yeah. Don't see eight.
1: It's all about family. Yeah, this could be heaven for
2: everyone. This world could be fair. This world could be fun. This world should be free, this world could be one We should bring love to our daughters and sons Love, 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 love This could be heaven for
5: everyone
1: In conclusion, The Good Place is a deeply gratifying show to watch delivering the heaviest of themes with the lightest of touches What we're talking about here is existence itself. Our personal pain is small in comparison, though, absolutely connected to our outlook. If you're religious and you believe in a heaven and or hell that has been described to you in books and sermons, then you will have a pretty solid vision of what awaits in the afterlife. For those who aren't especially religious, and according to the census numbers, we are still most definitely in the minority, or those of us who cherry-pick aspects of different beliefs rather than sticking to a rigid doctrine, we might be likely to have a shifting view on what waits for us behind the veil. I've always rationalised that if it's just nothing, just emptiness and utter absence of thought, then I won't be kicking around pissed off that I'm not still alive, because I'd have to be thinking something to make that happen, in which case I can, over time, think of other things instead. And that's not emptiness, especially if billions of other formerly living minds are out there too. If there really is nothing, we have nothing to fear, because by definition we cannot bear witness to it, we simply cease. If there's a heaven that only lets in the true believers of a particular faith, I lucked out of that. So I'm going to have to go where the other majority of the world went. Because while the majority may be religious, the majority aren't all the same religion. They can't all be exactly right because of the aforementioned rigidity of the rule sets. South Park did this by going, yeah, the correct answer was Mormons. Mormons. So maybe there's as many heavens as there are religions gated off like holiday communities, in which case I'm still not welcome in most of them, so I have no choices or responses to make. I'm an agnostic, not an atheist. In my experience, hardcore atheists, in my experience, hardcore atheists, desperate to tell everyone else that they're idiots for believing in something, are just as obnoxious as the hyper-religious though a great many of the bloody conflicts in our history that didn't need to happen were begun by men who used God as a reason. Since I was about nine, I figured out that if everything in heaven was blissful 24-7, and that even the concept of 24-7 didn't exist within infinite time, then you would get bored very quickly, unless your memory was wiped repeatedly. And even then, how much of you would still be you? And most of all, what would be the point? The same rule felt true of hell. There's only a finite number of times you can have a red-hot poker rammed up your ash hole before it gets predictable, mundane.
0: And becomes a literal ash hole.
1: There aren't enough tortures to keep an endless existence being tortured spicy. Hence, the dim-witted demons of the good place trading tips on how best to keep things fresh in a workplace environment where torment is an everyday clock-in, clock-out kind of thing. Agnostics aren't sure. Sure. They can't be certain, they leave room for possibility, and they question things. It's a good place to be, because you don't have to deal with your own fear quite so much, though there is a ton of anxiety to be had within the parameters of uncertainty. The Good Place presents us with a friendly version of Hellraiser. Existence goes on and seems to be mainly about torture and torment, only rather than Clive Barker's version where monsters tear you to shreds over and over, something which, again, you would get used to eventually. This is a torment with a heavy bureaucratic streak, just as Pixar codified monsters scaring us as children in Monsters, Inc. into something 1950s American factory worker environment style, and later they did the same with The Dead in Coco. The Good Place offers some relief in the speculative idea that those in charge don't know everything and are just trying to muddle by and do their jobs without getting fired out of a cannon into the sun. Executive producer Drew Goddard did something similar with The Cabin in the Woods. Then the movie Hereditary last year had a family fall prey to the machinations of forces beyond their understanding. The fear there was derived from the idea that we have no control over the direction our lives go – The Good Place challenges that by arguing that you can argue on a philosophical level with the forces of darkness and light, not control them, but make your case. Which leads me to a conclusion not from the show, but from the recent comedy routine of Patton Oswalt who you may remember as Remy the Rat in Pixar's Ratatouille. He's a gifted stand-up artist and has many shows under his belt. You can track his outlook on life from an immature, spiteful start where he feared getting married and having children to the moment that he met his wife, Michelle McNamara, which changed the way he told jokes as he mellowed slightly and turned the lens of comedy on his own disastrous passage through life. Then they had their first child, and for a few shows he became even better of a comedian, taking in a world that scares the shit out of him because he has to turn his daughter out into it eventually. On the day his show Talking for Clapping arrived on Netflix, his wife Michelle died. Suddenly and unexpectedly. So the next time we see him in 2017's Annihilation, no, not the Natalie Portman film also on Netflix, he has lived through becoming a widower and a single father. It's his best performance yet. He holds back on the true pain until the middle, before unleashing a series of vignettes about his coping and inability to cope. He ends on the words of Michelle, who, from the sounds of her, was a deeply wise and good-hearted woman who managed to encapsulate life into a four-word philosophy, which I have been skirting around for years myself, but could never put so beautifully or succinctly.
5: My wife was a, a true crime writer and researcher, and her the phrase she hated the most was, you know, everything happens for a reason. <laughs> she, she's like, No, it fucking doesn't. It's chaos. It's all random and it's horrifying. And if you want to try to reduce the horror and reduce the chaos, be kind. That's all you can do. It's chaos, be kind. <laughs> she would just say that, oh, it's chaos, be kind. Now. I would always, we'd have these huge philosophical arguments where I was like, I don't believe in a, in a intelligent uh, creator per se, but I think that there might be a, a latticework of logic and meaning to the universe that maybe we're too small to see. And she was like, sweetie, it's all random, it's all chaos. It's chaos, be kind. It's chaos, be kind. And then we would go back and forth, and then she won the argument in the shittiest way possible. <laughs>
1: It's chaos, be kind. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't it so simple? Such a priceless conclusion from a human mind able to comprehend the vastness of existence and our pinprick of personal influence. It's chaos, be kind. That's the reason I hate hereditary. The conclusion there is its order doesn't matter if you're kind or not. But the good place fits extremely well with It's Chaos Be Kind. Not because you're seeking moral desert, hoping to be rewarded, venerated for your good works, simply because you recognise that life is cruel and unfair, that people who have it the hardest suffer needlessly, and people who have it the easiest keep getting gifted more and more privilege. That we cannot alone change how forked we have made our society. And even if you stripped us away completely, That perceived natural order is wild and chaotic, wiping species from the globe in the blink of a cosmic eye. That we are here and can think is the miracle that most of us overlook. Search every other planet in our solar system and try having a conversation with the lichen and squid things that you find there. That our consciousness might go on beyond our time on this blue and green sphere and find part of who we are in our heads right now. Debating moral relativism with ethereal beings is, for want of a better word, comforting. Bill Hicks said many, many offensive things in his time as a comedian, but the one that sticks with me is the symbolic nature of the statement that rather than fixating on a Renaissance painting view of heaven, all angels with halos and harps sitting on clouds, beckoning the chosen few to come sit and eat with the Almighty, instead devote our efforts to making this world a better place to live in. Instead of fixating on how a fetus is treated, work towards ensuring that children don't go hungry, or poorly, or undereducated. What Bill was saying, even in the same show as he claimed to be a randy goat boy forking everyone, is that we are in charge of heaven and hell, as they manifest right here on Earth. So whether there's a higher power or not almost doesn't matter. The responsibility of being a decent human being is on us either way.
5: But there's people out there, uh, especially the people in power. I'm sorry to get, I'll just leave you with this. There's people that want to create wounds that will not heal. That's the turn on for them. Um, So just, I'm just going to end this by quoting Michelle Eileen McNamara. It's chaos. Be kind. Thank you. Good night.